Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm here with TLO's editor, David Collingridge. David, welcome. Let's start with an article you've got about cervical cancer. This is actually a fascinating study. This is looking at the association between the precursor lesions and cervical cancer and a remarkable story to do with New Zealand, uh, which enabled this study actually to be done. Yes, there's a very interesting story behind this paper that really makes the data very remarkable. In the 1960s, there was debate as to whether certain lesions, in particular carcinoma in situ, was actually a precursor for cervical cancer. Today, of course, we very clearly realise that CIS is most definitely a precursor, but back then the biology just simply wasn't as well characterised as today. So as a result, a Dr Herbert Green from the um, National Women's Hospital in Auckland in New Zealand gained permission to test a hypothesis that CIS did not lead to cancer. Now, Dr. Green, he was a really well-respected medic, and he had been described as one of the world's top 25 clinicians. So his study resulted in the recruitment of a large number of women who received no treatment of any curative intent following biopsy, irrespective of cytological abnormalities. Now, in the early 1970s, concerns were raised about the validity of the hypothesis, and following conclusions from a working group, referrals to the study decreased. Between 1987 and 88, a judicial inquiry concluded the study had been unethical because the treatment was withheld without consent, monitoring of outcomes was inadequate, and the study had not ended when clinicians raised concerns. Additionally, the inquiry referred for independent clinical review all women for whom there had been any doubt about the adequacy of their management. Interestingly, one of the recommendations from the inquiry was to allow access to histological and other material at the National Women's Hospital so that it could be used for future research, so at least some good can come from these unfortunate circumstances. Now, because of the very good record-keeping from the original study, the paper in TLO this month is able to provide insight into the long-term risk of invasive cancer of the cervix amongst women with CIN3 and provide the most accurate figures to date on the rate of progression from SIN3 to invasive cancer. Now this is a question that cannot be answered in the current era because we now know that SIN3 is a precursor so a controlled study would be unethical. It is really interesting looking at the story behind the study here. The data, David, that you referred to, I mean some of the data goes back to the 1950s, doesn't it? So how much data was actually available for the analysis? Dr Green's study actually recruited patients between 1965 and 1974 but the judicial inquiry reviews records from 1955 to 1976 So it's this group that are reported in the current paper by Margaret McCready and colleagues. This data set includes 1,229 women and was sufficient to address three aims. Firstly, to provide an estimate on the invasive potential of SIN3 in women with persisting disease as defined by positive cytology within two years after initial treatment. Secondly, to assess the invasive potential of SIN3 in women who had minimal disturbance of their lesion i.e. women who underwent a punch or wedge wedge biopsy. And finally, the data also provide an estimate on the long-term risk of cancer in women who received adequate treatment initially and conventional management thereafter. So, in effect, an approximation for current clinical practice. And the results, are they pretty well unequivocal for SYN3? Absolutely. In, In women managed with punch or wedge biopsy, incidence of invasive cancer of the cervix or the vaginal vault was 31.3% at 30 years and 50.3% in women who had persistent disease. By comparison, cancer risk at 30 years 
was only 0.7% in women whose initial treatment was deemed adequate, or probably adequate, and whose treatment for recurrent disease was conventional. You've already touched on this, David. I mean, this is obviously a historical retrospective analysis, but what do these results mean now in terms of um, clinical management now? Do they have direct relevance? From the results, it's very clear that women found to have SIN3, probably during routine screening, are at a very high risk of developing invasive cancer and should undergo interventional management as soon as possible. Now, you've got another study which is in similar vein, and this is comparing prostate cancer mortality in the United States compared with the UK. And presumably this is interesting because screening for prostate cancer was introduced in the States in the early 90s, whereas it's rare in the UK. Is that right? Yes, that's right. There are certain parallels between this study by uh, Simon Collin and the previous New Zealand article we, we were just talking about. Collin points out that there's no conclusive evidence that screening based on serum PSA tests actually decreased prostate cancer mortality. The changes seen in recent times could be due simply to improvements in treatment, for example. So in the current paper, Colin and his colleagues, they set out to assess the trends over time in prostate cancer mortality and incidence in the US and the UK between 1975 and 2004, and they compare the patterns with trends in screening and treatment. Now such a comparison is possible because the uptake of PSA testing has been rapid in the US, as, as you just said, since its introduction in the 1990s, much less so here in the UK. Now, presumably a study like this can only, therefore, assess trends. I mean, it's comparative, isn't it, between two different country settings and the availability or not of screening. How would you summarise the results from this study? Well, the paper shows that age-specific and age-adjusted prostate cancer mortality peaked in the early 1990s at almost identical rates in both countries. But age-adjusted mortality in the United States subsequently declined after 1994 by about 4% each year, which is four times the rate of decline in the UK after 1992. Now, the mortality decline in the US was greatest and most sustained in patients aged 75 years or older, whereas death rates have plateaued in this age group in the UK by the year 2000. Most notably, the paper also shows the mean ratio of USA to UK age-adjusted prostate cancer incident rates in 1975 to 2003 was 2.5, with a pronounced peak around the time that PSA screening was introduced in the States. Now clearly these data provide some of the strongest hints to date that PSA screening has contributed to improved outcomes in the USA, a message that the UK clearly needs to take on board. But the analyses, being retrospective, being based on registry data, clearly have their limitations, and as the authors note, we still can only continue to speculate about the relative contributions of differences in detection and treatment, or the relative balance of benefits and harms. And until publication of results from various ongoing trials are published, we still won't really have the level of evidence needed to justify a change in screening practice. You took the words out of my mouth, David. <laughs> the randomised trials, they are tantalisingly referred to in, in the paper. What are our expectations there? Well, there's a British trial ongoing known as CAP, which is an extension of the PROTECT trial. And this aims to provide an estimate on the effect of a single round of PSA testing in a screening program on prostate cancer-specific and all-cause mortality. And the trial is involved in this study aimed to recruit about 230,000 men aged 50 to 69 years. And I believe the first results are due in about two years' time. The other trials that are ongoing include the, the Prostate, Lung, Colorectal and Ovary, or the PLCO, trial in the United States, and the European Randomised Screening for Prostate Cancer, or the ERSPC trial, in Europe. 
The total number of men and age range being recruited into these trials is similar to the UK CAP trial, and the results are expected very soon. But in the meantime, in terms of the UK, and you sort of hinted at this already, David, I mean, is it justified for the UK to entertain the idea of PSA screening, given that we have this evidence, be it retrospective uh, trend sort of analysis, uh, with what's going on in the States? Well, I actually think it's very sensible for us to wait um, for the results of the trials. After all, we should know the five-year mortality statistics very soon from those trials. And if these are in keeping with estimates such as Simon Collins, then the case for population-based screening will be so much stronger. Thank you, David. And finally, a very interesting series of articles being launched this month, David. And this is looking at cancer and indigenous populations. And I remember two or three years ago, we focused on indigenous health in the Lancet Weekly Journal, which was fascinating to do. And you're taking this approach with cancer. Why are you interested in this topic now? Well, indigenous peoples are often overlooked in the cancer landscape. And while developed and increasingly less developed nations continue to develop and incorporate more and more elaborate management schemes into their healthcare programs, many groups of people are left marginalised and even excluded from these developments. Often you find such people are indigenous populations that are left out because of many socio-economic and cultural reasons. Now ironically, a large proportion of indigenous people live in well-resourced countries and yet cancer in these people is poorly understood and even more poorly treated. So throughout the rest of the year, we've decided to run a series of reviews highlighting the issues surrounding cancer in indigenous peoples with the hope that this will increase awareness of the scale of the problem so that more can be done to help these people in the future. Yeah, the first article published this month, David, the May issue of the Lancet Oncology we're talking about, this focuses on indigenous people in the Polynesian region. And just geographically, I was interested to read, this is actually a vast area, isn't it, of the Pacific? Because it's got Hawaii, sort of one end, if you like, Easter Island, and it goes all the way down to New Zealand and includes New Zealand Maori population. What were the main findings from this review? In this first review by Gabby Dax and colleagues, the authors find data on cancer in Polynesian populations is sparse, with undercounting of incidence and mortality presenting as a major problem on especially the smaller islands in that region. They also report how data on ethnicity, stage and grade of cancers and treatment is frequently absent in published literature and the definition of specific ethnicities is not always clear. In addition, the authors note how the extent of differences in outcome due to different extrinsic risk factors, biological factors, other health behaviours is unclear. And they also comment on the late stage of diagnosis and how future research needs to focus on the attributes of cancer that determine a worst prognosis. Finally, the review concludes by noting that cancer burden in Polynesian communities could be lowered by increased culturally appropriate public education on screening programs, diet and smoking. Yes, David, and also you've got an interesting comment by John Seferin introducing this series. And he's very much looking at cancer treatment, isn't he, from a health and human rights perspective. And he states how cancer itself is going to be the world's leading killer in just two years' time and highlights many inequities, doesn't he, among different populations. Do you want to just highlight some of those? Yes, he, he highlights some, some very stark statistics, actually. Last year, cancer was responsible for 7.6 million deaths worldwide but more than 70% of these occurred in low- to middle-income countries. And of this 70%, a majority of cases were detected too late for effective treatment. John Seferin notes some really striking statistics in his link comment. For example, five-year breast cancer survival in the USA is about 80%, whereas in sub-Saharan Africa is only 30%. 
Another startling statistic is that 75% of children with cancer live for five or more years in Europe and North America, whereas three-year survival ranges from only 48 to 62% in Central America. Now, Seferin concludes his comment with a really powerful call to arms. He says, All individuals, organisations and countries need to recognise the immense burden of death and suffering caused by this terrible disease and work together to achieve worldwide cancer control by ensuring fair access to health resources for all. Now, I really hope that the series we're running this year will play a small part in the education needed to realise that goal. Yeah, I hope so too, David. And just perhaps um, give us a little taster of other topics in this series that we can expect over the coming months. We have additional reviews coming up on Australia's Indigenous people, on African tribes, on the Inuits, and on a range of other interrelated topics. Great. Thank you very much, David. Thank you all for listening. These are some highlights from the May 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. David and I will be back next month.